0: no taxation
1: without representation 200 years of exploitation in the capital of this nation no representation in the capital of this nation 200 years of exploitation Give the people
0: their right
1: to vote. Someone asked me, was it true?
2: The voting rights of the district were long overdue. That was Sweet Honey in the Rock with Give the People the Right to Vote. Hello, and welcome to Shadow Politics, an hour long grassroots talk show, which will attempt to shine a light on the issues that you care about. I'm your host, United States Senator Michael D. Brown, coming to you live from the District of Columbia, America's Last Colony. I'm joined by my co-host, Marilia Duffels, and together we hope our show will start a dialogue with America about the issues that are important to you and affect the lives of all of us. So we're coming to you today on this very special day. We have a very special guest. I have my co-host, Marilia, with us. Marilia, how are you?
0: I'm doing fine. How
2: are you, Chuck? Yeah, we have Chuck Hicks of all people, Mr. Black History. Let me, before we let Chuck talk, let me just tell our listeners who he is. Chuck is the chair of the DC Black History Celebration Committee. He sits on the Commission of Aging, the Martin Luther King Jr. Day Commission, the MLK Holiday DC Committee. Chuck was instrumental in. Con- con- coordinating the Million Man March, the famous March on Washington, and the Million Family March. He was a librarian. This is why Mrs. Brown loves him, also a librarian, with the D.C. Public Library for more than 50 years and a union leader and with extensive experience working on social justice causes. Uh, he, by the way, has, has been a great activist in his life, This brief description of him doesn't uh, pay him, uh, uh, you know, doesn't do him justice. He's a graduate of Syracuse University and the University of Central Maryland and has a bachelor's and a master's degree. And he is the son of famed civil rights leader Robert Hicks. So, Chuck, thanks for being on our show today.
1: Oh, I'm always happy to be on your show, Senator.
2: Uh. First, let me say to
1: everybody out there, happy Father's Day. This is a
2: big day, and Chuck's going to talk about a project that he has called Black Fathers Matter. Uh, but uh, let me first wish everybody happy Father's Day. And then let me also point out that today, June 19th, is Juneteenth. This is a big, uh, uh, an important date in African American history in America. Uh, Chuck, can you fill us in? Why is Juneteenth, what is Juneteenth, and why is it important?
1: Well, Juneteenth has a history before Juneteenth. And primarily, what happened is that, after Lincoln and, uh, 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 started uh, signing Emancipation Proclamation, well, basically, wherever the troops in front of the troops went and freed the slaves, uh, or enslaved persons, uh, there was a celebration. And if you were in uh, Shook County, Mississippi, when you were free, then you had a celebration. You put on your best rags and you had a celebration and you went to church or you did something. And oftentimes it was called homecoming. Sometimes it was called Freedom Day. Sometimes it was called Jubilee. But uh, after uh, the the found place that slaves were free was, of course, in Gavison, Texas. Uh, and that was in eight, uh, 1865 um, when uh, the slaves were free there. And uh, so it, was, it became a legal holiday t- uh, a year later. And one of the things that happened is that there were celebrations of Freedom Day of, of enslaved persons for many years, but after, particularly after World War II, uh, the celebration sort of died down. And many people in Sweatyclock, Arkansas, couldn't remember when the slaves were freed. Many people in Shiloh, Mississippi, Sandy Hook, Mississippi, couldn't remember when they were freed. But they all knew that there was that the slaves were freed, and it was a legal holiday in Galveston, Texas. So they said, "Well." we'll just celebrate that day that it, that Texas is doing. So that's how we migrated, basically, to Juneteenth. And Juneteenth is it's called Juneteenth because so often slaves didn't speak uh, English. They took broken English, so they cut their words off. So instead of saying Juneteenth, they say Juneteenth. And so that's how that term came about. And that's actually how we... Started to celebrate and recognize Juneteenth, but its beginning came long before Galveston, Texas. Wherever enslaved persons were freed, they celebrated. It was a wonderful feeling throughout the time when uh, you finally found out that uh, you were freed. And of course, there's a story that says that uh, many of the uh, slaves in Texas they didn't learn because that they were free because. The, Masters tried to use them to, make, to get that last crop out before they told them they were free or they were forced to. Uh, the garrison came and told them they were free. And also well,
2: Texas, and that, I'm sorry. Huh? Go ahead,
1: John. Go ahead. And Texas also became a place, since Texas was sort of the last place uh, for slavery, a uh, lot of slave owners and they moved to Texas uh, as a, a place of security uh, and to try to Continue their growth in terms of their products and making money off of slaves. So they moved their slaves also. So that that, in a nutshell, is kind of the history of Juneteenth. Uh, and why? Well, it and come. that wasn't that wasn't unusual uh,
2: for slaves enslaved people, was it, uh, Chuck? That you know we had no mass communication, so they were kind of dependent. On on uh, just word of mouth and and people getting the news from them. I think of Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass, who didn't know when he was born, so he picked Valentine's Day as his birthday, February fourteenth. Uh,
1: yeah.
2: So, yeah. So that was that was well, uh, that was pretty common in, in those yes, days. And,
1: and, uh, and, and it was not just common for enslaved persons, but. Whites had very low, I mean, it might take three months to get some information about whatever you want it to be. If, for an example, uh, there was somebody coming who uh, and the state was about to enact something, it might take a year before you actually learn about whatever they had done. Uh, you know, if the price of uh, corn was going up, just uh, communication was very, very slow. It's just like uh, uh, the Pony Express. Uh, you didn't get a letter so if I sent you a letter from uh, Boston, and it, it might take you uh, six months to get it, three months to get it. You know I had to go from Boston to someplace else, and the, you got the Pony Express there because there was no railroad, or, and so they troubled my horse with all the mail. Uh, and so it was not an uncommon thing during that time that information was slow, communication was slow. But it was more um, restricted for, of course, African Americans. Because one, there was a limited amount mm-hmm. of uh, information that they learned, and they and they couldn't, they weren't allowed to read and write, and they weren't allowed to learn. And so every all the information that they got, uh, mm-hmm. it was right here, saying it was whisper. Uh, there are rumors that they, they would see say, I hear freedom coming. Uh, I hear they free someplace else. I hear freedom coming. But it didn't happen for them until it actually happened. Uh, and so, as you say, it was, it was a, uh, a communication gap here that not only for enslaved persons, but for the country to a degree. Uh, perhaps in New York and Boston, that was a much more sophisticated uh, communication system. But the rural south. And the West was and
2: that's where that slavery was, you know. So it yeah. was it was restricted. Yeah, I think of uh, I'm sorry, really I I I just gotta get this thought out or I'll forget it. I think of the drum laws. Uh, maybe they were in Alabama or you know, I saw a play one time called "Bringing the Noise, Bring in the Thump, and they talked about the evolution of tap dancing, which was brought about because drums were banned for African-Americans in certain places because they found them communicating on them. It's crazy. I'm sorry, Marilly, go ahead. I didn't mean to cut you off.
0: Oh, no, that's okay. I was just going to say, Chuck, that it seems to me that a lot of information was probably suppressed. A lot of information about that. They didn't
1: want the black people to know. Well, you're absolutely right. A good example of that, of course, is I uh, didn't want them to know I learned to read and write a good example of that in Frederick Douglass's autobiography he talks about uh, the the wife the slave owner's wife and he had a little he had a friend the, her son and so you know during slavery uh, little boys and little girl, you became a playmate for the little boy or the little girl became a playmate for the little girl but they were slaves but they were their playmates and they did things so when she taught the little boy, her son, to read, since Frederick Douglass was his playmate, she taught him to read also. And they had, there was a theory going around saying that blacks couldn't learn and they couldn't write and they couldn't do anything. So she was teaching this little boy, uh, her son, and Frederick Douglass how to read and write. So at some dinner party or gathering or something, she brought them out and she brought Frederick Douglass out. And she had him to read and to write something. And she was just all smiles. And the story goes her husband was livid, absolutely livid. And he stopped her and said, don't you ever teach them to read and write. They're not supposed to know how to read and write. And Mm -hmm. then Frederick Douglass, who was clever, later he was still the little boy's playmate. And so he would tell the little boy, I bet you can't read this. And if the little boy read it, Frederick Douglass could. Could remember it, and he learned. He continued to learn to read and write. Uh, but you're absolutely right. Uh, you, that that is a a true uh, suppression there. And the thing about drumming, of course, from in Africa, drums was a mean of communications. So when people, to a degree, were here, they uh, when they couldn't speak a language, if they could sit out drum, you know, they could send out a drum beat. You, it would make you aware of something, so they banned drumming uh, to, uh, for slaves. Uh, so it's been a very, very repressive uh, time during that during those times for uh, people of color, African Americans.
2: Well, you know, one of the things that's always amazed me is our ability as human beings to compartmentalize. When I read what Thomas Jefferson wrote, for example, I love Thomas Jefferson because he was such a great and powerful writer. But this is a man that talked about freedom and uh, the, the inherent uh, spirit of man that was given to them by God. And then he owned slaves. I mean, it, you know, these guys, these guys said such beautiful things about everybody being equal and everybody being free. But then they turned around and they were slave owners. and It, it just always amazed me. Was,
1: uh, I believe that that was because they didn't see slaves as humans. Yeah. Uh, they just did not. Uh, they mm-hmm. were never brought here as humans. They were brought here as, uh, you know, the, uh, they were uh, at one point they were on the county as three-fourths of a man and one-fourth of a man, but they were like cows. <laughs> so they didn't yeah. see yeah. them as humans. Just like a horse could ply a field, (laughs) slaves could work a field. Uh, And then, of course, part of this idea uh, from this country, which came out of uh, Europe, and when they were fighting to control this country, was the idea of the power of men, and particularly white men, and the privilege of being a white man uh, that has... pervaded even today for for many, many white men. That's part of the whole idea, concept of Proud Boys. It's a concept that, you know, we're losing our country. We're losing the privilege of being white. The idea that uh, I'm a farmer, uh, a uh, a mechanic, or a truck driver, or whatever, and that there's a white, there's a black man who's the lawyer, and once upon a time, I don't care if he was walking in a suit, and I was in the dirty overalls. When he told me come, he had to get off the street because I was white. I had the privilege of being white. Wow. And so I think Thomas Jefferson and all the founding fathers, when they began to embrace this concept, they did not embrace it with the concept of African-Americans or people of color. Uh, it was just for them. And their struggle to fight ignorance in terms of not being able to answer to them. That we are we are a country now, and we will not yield uh, uh be le to you. we will not bow to you. we are America uh, but that did not include the Native American and it did not include uh enslaved persons from Africa
2: well it, going it, to what go ahead said,
0: Chuck, about, um going back to what you said, Chuck about um Making blacks look like they were—I think you—I believe you said cows—but dehumanizing them. That is a common ploy, and it's been used over the history of man. As in, indeed, by to name one example, the English did it to the Irish, and and the sort of um, theory behind that being that if you dehumanize them, it's easier. To oppress them, it's easier to to beat them, it's easier to inflict harm on them because they're not seen as part of the human race, which is is sick. But that's the the sort of psychological theory behind it. And it's also sort of the the social theory, too, because if other people see them as less than human, then they, they will not protest what the
1: oppressors are doing. I think that's a very interesting point, and I think you're right. And one of the interesting pieces about in, in, uh, re, uh, reading into that is that, uh, particularly in this country, when uh Irish came, they were discriminated against, and they had all their problems. When uh, the Italians came, they had problems. Uh, the Jews, they had problems. But eventually, because of the color of their skin, they could be accepted. Blacks, because of the color of our skin, have never been able to not be dehumanized. Uh, at mm-hmm. one point, uh, the Irish were not dehumanized anymore, uh, and they blended in. Uh, right. The Italians blended in. Uh, but blacks have never been a- able to blend in because of their color. Uh, that has made it difficult uh, to be accepted as a, a part of this country. Uh, it's very very difficult but i think that that throughout history i think you're right i think that's what history has taught us uh not only in america but throughout the world that when you dehumanize a group of people it's easier to continue to do that and it's easier to make them think that they're less than what they are Mm
2: -hmm. well you know i the perfect example of this for me chuck was my italian grandmother my Mm -hmm. italian grandmother was discriminated against. And what I never understood is that when she, she, she I think black people call this passing. She was Northern Italian and she was blonde and blue eyed. So she, she didn't have an accent. She never spoke Italian to right. anybody that could speak English. When my grandfather, who was relatively uneducated, but spoke several languages because he grew up in Europe, when he would try to speak Italian to her, she would say, I don't understand you. I'm an American. Speak English. You know, and, 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 but the thing that always amazed me about her, and I've seen it before, but I don't see it in black people, is that when my grandmother made it and fit in, she kind of felt that she had a right to discriminate against other people. Because she had been discriminated against. You know what I mean? It was almost like, it's my turn. And she believed every stereotype about African Americans, Irish, you know, everybody. But black people in America, in their history, they've been relatively nonviolent. They've been relative, you know, I mean, is it something about the culture that, that, you know, I've never felt like black people felt like they needed to get even you know, they wanted to be equal, but but it was different with my grandmother. My grandmother, my grandmother was all about segregation, and you know, she always voted for the corrupt corrupt Italian politician. I think we had five mayors in a row in North New Jersey that went to jail, but she always voted for him because God forbid you should get an Irishman or, or a Jew or somebody like that. So, what is it about black people that
1: they don't want to get even? Do you think there's? I don't. Do, now uh, and of course I am the first to say that I can't speak for all black people, but one of the concepts of is that uh, I think that for some of us, <laughs> it's not about getting even; it's about achieving, just being yeah. even, or being equal. Uh, that mm-hmm. sometimes it takes a lot more energy, particularly when you when the odds are so struck against you. You talk about your grandmother who could. Pass at some point. But even at some point, <laughs> her family didn't have to pass anymore. Right. Uh, and and exactly. so they, they, you know, they paid the price and then they, they were brought into the circle. I think for um, some blacks, uh, it's been a struggle to just to get into the circle. I think one of the issues or interesting points was during the Civil Rights Movement, particularly um, when we passed the Voting Rights Act and all those sort of things. We thought that once we got in uh, and were allowed to eat and go to school and stuff like that, uh, the attitudes would change toward us. But uh, one of the challenges that I think we felt in the civil rights movement was that uh, while we were doing black and white together and all these sort of things, the Dr. King, the civil rights leader, there was a whole group of people not into that, were plotting, and they've always done that. Look at all the voting rights laws now. But I think also that there is indeed a group of black people, some, who have felt that uh, some white people have had their foot on their necks much too long without any, any concern or care, and that there is a bitterness uh, about that. And that not only there, but you see it now when you see things like uh, George Floyd, that there is a resentment. Uh, uh, towards that group of or people who do that. Uh, the issue becomes, you know, uh, the mechanism in terms of how you get back, or how do you pay back a revenge, and I think it's limited. Uh, but I think that part of that is to, for, for blacks uh, who, are, who are now engaging and supporting blacks, uh, uh, groups like uh, the Muslims and, Uh, other black groups who are African groups who are pan-Africanists and stuff like that. It's not so much a revenge, but it's a matter of building our own, being uh, being a part of ourselves and not a part of what America has to give us, learning to buy black, learning to be black, learning to live in black communities, uh, and being happy about it. Uh, But there are indeed people who remember and will not forget, uh, sometimes there's a saying that says, uh, I forgive, but I don't forget. And sometimes there's another saying when black people say, I, I don't forgive and I don't forget. And, but those are not the majority of, I think, the, the, the views of African Americans in this country. Uh, but like I said, when I, when I started that conversation, uh, I am not a, First, and to talk about all the different philosophies in terms of how we as African Americans and people of color feel. But I do know that there are different opinions and feelings about how we get to where we are, uh, how people, how some people view the, the struggle of Martin Luther King as opposed to the Black Panther Party as opposed to the Muslims. Uh, but they were all in one effort trying to move. Black people to a better level, a, a new level, uh, and so it, it's a difficult question, and I think it's something that uh, we'll co- we will continue to to think about and challenge, and be challenged about for a long, long time. And not only, uh, I will share this other thought is that I think that there is in this country today a, a new issue uh, that is concerning, that uh, certainly for black people and other people is that um, the involvement of um, South, uh, Latin Americans coming and how easily they are beginning to be accepted into white America. If you go to, for example, uh, restaurants in D.C., the upscale uh, uh, restaurants or just uh, Italian restaurants, any of the restaurants on 7th Street. You rarely find black waiters. You find Mm-hmm. uh not uh Latin American but waiters and women uh, but you don't find black uh waiters you may find them in the kitchen and that's not even so much you know uh you go to Mcdonald's there are no black people working at Mcdonald's but more black people support them you look at uh the, the building trade in this city when you look at the number of people who are working uh, uh 90 Ninety percent of the workers in this city building, building, building to are Latino. The other three, three percent are white men who are bosses, and then another two percent of blacks who are working. And, and, so, and but within that, uh, there is a division. I did a program about five years ago at Mount Pleasant. It was called "Challenges for, for Brown Latinos," and they talked about their discrimination among uh, the Latino community because they don't feel that, they will, that whites will accept him the way they will accept a, a blonde Latino woman. Uh, and yeah. so a lot of it uh, goes back to color skin, and I think there's a, there will be a resentment about that. Um,
2: you know, the first time I saw Dick Gregory when I was in college, I know he was a friend of yours. We both knew yeah. him. Uh, he said to us, to college students, that um, part of the 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 way that you keep people down, just as Morelia just said, is to make you know is to to dehumanize them. But he also said that we have a tendency to accept that, and we have to realize that, and we have to realize in, in those days we are in the middle of the Vietnam War. He was taught we all had long hair, you know, we were gonna change the world. And he was talking to us as students and he said, Don't accept what they tell you, uh, because that's the problem that we accepted and we believe ourselves to be inferior. Does that still go on in the black community? Black people have they accepted it? Do they feel that they're inferior? Do you
1: think no, I, I don't think that black people feel that they're inferior. I think that many black people or lots of black people feel that they don't get an equal opportunity to to strive to do the kinds of things uh, that other other races, uh, ethnic groups can. Uh, But certainly uh, we uh, don't see ourselves. And there's an enormous pride in being black, uh, that we are happy to be black. What are the, the um, reason that I am now doing this wonderful event called Black Fathers Matter on Father's Day is because it says something something good to say about black men. Uh, and so often uh, society has uh, moved us in a position that, uh, well, uh, black women can feel good about themselves and they should see black women in a positive light. They don't necessarily see black men in that same light. But I think that uh, there is a pride about being black. Uh, I think there's a lack of, we feel a lack of opportunity because we're black. But that I don't think that that makes us not want to be black. Uh, And that we are still struggling uh, uh, to make those differences. And I think more and more today uh, there are opportunities being opened up, uh, trying to uh, uh, limit, bring the glass ceiling down uh, so that other people can be a part of it. Uh, There's a a great, a big effort, great effort to include women, women of color, white women, and a whole bunch of the glass ceiling things. But I I don't think that uh, black people, uh, and I feel certainly in all the black people that I know, from uh, those who are homeless to those who earn more than a quarter, uh, they're all proud to be black. Uh, and some can learn, have learned to be uh, in the system and function like other things, but they don't forget that they're black, and they're proud to be black.
0: Well, I think history tells us that the very skin color of black people was used to justify turning them into slaves and oppressing them. That was, you know, the first sort of obvious, um, sure. visual thing that they used. Sadly. But the funny thing is, you think about it nowadays, there's black, white people who go out there and try to get tanned and and darker than than a bunch of white people I know. So it's kind of ironic to me. And I also have to say that getting back to what you were saying about um, uh, the way black people have come out of this and, and the suffering, I have tremendous respect for black people spe- especially the older generation because they are closer to the to the suffering that their family endured and yet you all maintain this dignity and this respect for others and a tolerance of of um I'm going to be blunt and say a tolerance of white people and and respect for white people and and treating them with courtesy that I don't know If I knew that my grandmother or grandfather had gone through that type of suffering, I don't think I would be able to maintain my composure. So my hat's off to you all. And I have tremendous respect for that.
2: Hey, you know, Chuck, now that Marilla has opened that door, can you tell me about Robert Hicks? Tell me about your dad and the things that he did because he was a civil rights leader.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, my dad was very active in civil rights, particularly in Bogalusa. My dad was the founder of the first chapter of uh, the Deacons for uh, Defense. And the Deacons for Defense was a, the first black group to carry guns in the civil rights movement for self-protection. Uh, and so uh, what would happen is that during the civil rights movement, oftentimes whites would drive through black communities and shoot Uh if they drove through a neighborhood and sell you to there, they'd jump out and beat you up. And so the, the concept of self-protection came out of Greensboro, Louisiana, uh, to put together a group called the Deacons. Most of them were men who had been in the military. And so they began to protect their communities. And we were having, there were lots of problems in Bogalusa. So uh, my dad made a contact with the, uh, the people from uh, Jonesboro, Louisiana, And uh, they came down, and they started a chapter on the the day that Malcolm X was killed. Uh, And that chapter grew and became naturally known more than probably any other chapter in the country because at one point uh, there was a a group of whites we had been been demonstrating. uh, They called Days of Testing where they would go in, and you would test to see whether or not they were going to serve you, in a Woolworth, or uh, some place like that, and then uh, after that, but to deal with it, it was going to happen one time and it would be over. But the young people wouldn't agree to that, and so they started going back so at some point, uh, there were marches and uh the uh, the clan formed, and uh we were a marked family, so by that time the uh, uh, people were guarding our houses and neighborhoods and stuff, so at one point that uh, chief of police came down and said, uh, there's a mob coming they lent you and we had we were the only family that kept the white civil rights workers. Uh for many reasons. Number one that uh people were afraid and also if somebody knew that you were keeping a civil rights movement, you became a marked family and if you were working for somebody white and they knew it they were going you're gonna lose your job. So in- anyway at that point, uh Uh, The chief of police came down and told my dad and mom that a mob was coming in and it was about 200 white men and that they wanted to take those civil rights workers out of the house and take them to New Orleans uh, so they would be safe. Uh, Otherwise, uh, they couldn't guarantee. My dad said, well, you mean you can't protect us? He said, we don't, I don't, I can't protect you. I got 20,000 other people to protect, and I don't have time to be pulling a pool of uh, trash referring to the civil rights workers and, and other negros. Uh, and so my dad said, if you don't give us protection, I'll get my own. And he started having my sister call uh, our neighbors and say, bring your guns. They come to, uh, to let and burn our house down. And in the process, uh, the civil rights workers were able to I uh, uh, called New Orleans and got UPI to press and stuff out and they started sending out these notices about what was going on. So by the time, of, of course, uh, the cops, uh, the, police, uh, the mob numbers came down because they saw all these black people coming and they were on, uh, on people's houses and in trees and on, all, on our house and on our roof and everything. So they, for whatever reason, they decided that this might not be the best move to make. So, uh when daylight came all these black men were there and the press was there. And so they interviewed my dad and they said, uh, who is this group? And he said they're called the Deacons, uh, for defense and it hit the wire and it went all over the world in New York Times, Chicago, New York, uh, California, every place. But we have always given credit where credit is due and the Many people think the deacons were started in Bogalusa. It was the first chapter, but it was not the first. The deacons were founded. But my dad was a man who, and my mom, who had brought us up to think that we could do anything, and that we could we could make it. And they were just they finished high school, but they you know my dad worked and my mom did housework, but they were strong people. They were active in the church and. They just, I come out of a family that did not tie down uh, to people. I remember one time when I was a senior, I was getting ready to go uh, off to school. And so my mother said, to, uh, so we're going to take you shopping and start buying you some clothes for college. And we went into this store called Berenson's. And I had picked out some suits and some pants and things. And my dad uh, was going to, put them on Lairway. That was a, tri- a, a, a traditional place that many people do even today, but certainly in the South, blacks and white put things on way. And so as my, they were telling up to build, a woman took her finger and shook it in my dad's face and said, now, boy, you make sure you make a payment on this on this every week. And my dad exploded. He said, I am not too damn, boy, and I don't need, uh, he said, I can go to the bank and draw the money out and I can pay for this t- every damn thing that my son wants. And so my dad was just flying off, and my mother said, we don't need it. We don't even need what you got. And she said, come on, son, come on, Bob. And we walked out. But that was just the kind of thing. Uh, um, there's a piece in doing a uh, the Civil Rights Movement in the movie, the Deacon Forest Whitaker, where you see uh, the white man, uh, my dad and A. Z. Young. A Z was the president, and my dad was the vice president, my dad was head of the deacon himself. And a white man pulled a gun on A Z and said he was gonna shoot him. And my dad put the pulled his gun and put it on the white man's head and said, And I'm gonna shoot you. Wow. And That's so creepy. my dad had always believed that, you know, two things in which I I believe also is that sometimes if you have some courage, that if you take the first step people will follow. But if there's nobody willing to take the first step then things can stay as they are. Uh, and they don't always have to be that way. It's like Kennedy said, some people wonder uh, how, why things are, and some people wonder why things can't be better, or why they can't be like we like them to be. Uh, and so my dad and my family, my moms were just, they were just, and on top of that, they were people who were very, very well liked in the community. If somebody needed something, I remember when before I went to college, there were kids uh, in our neighborhood who were going to school at Southern. It was about two and a half hours away, and they didn't have a car and stuff like that. And my dad would pat two or three of those uh, kids in his car and drive them to Southern so they have so they could get to college, pick them up when it was time for them to come home. And I wasn't even going to college there. But those were the kinds of things uh, that my family was able to do. Uh, we just try to do what was right and stand for what was right. But we did not let anybody black or white run over us. Uh, and that's just the beginning of uh, what my family stood for and stands for today. On
0: that note, I have something to say, and it's a quote by one of my favorite people in this world, past, but Frederick Douglass said uh. the limit. <laughs> the limits of tyrants are dictated by the endurance of those whom they oppress. And that encapsulates your parents, your father, especially.
2: <laughs> you know, and, and that's so important, really, uh, that, that, that quote and what you said is so important. And I feel that I'm somewhat blessed because I had a father who was the most egalitarian person I've ever met in my entire life. He wasn't fond of a lot of people, but he truly believed in his heart that all people were exactly the same, that mm. you would find the, the same number of good people and bad people in every ethnic group, every sex, every religion. Uh, he truly believed that. And then I had a mother, who the Italian mother, who believed in all the stereotypes. She didn't practice it. But she believed it. You know, my mother, I just got to share this. My mother worked in an all black school where the kids of middle school, where the kids adored her and she adored the kids. But she still believed in segregation. And I won. I got to tell this story. I won a dance contest because my when I was a little boy, my sister and her girlfriends used to dance the jitterbug with me. You know, they thought it was cute in in our basement. So when I got to middle school, I knew how to jitterbug. Well, the only person in my school that was a really good hand dancer happened to be an African-American girl who grew up to be actually the DA for Montgomery County. But I won the dance contest with Teresa Bennett. Me and Teresa won. And we ended up on the front page of the, like, little school newspaper newspaper. And my mother put herself into a self-inflicted coma. She was like, <laughs> apoplectic. And we used to say to her mom, because she loved the kids so much, we'd say, what do you think happens to them when they become adults? Why, you know, you love them when they're little. Because, and it's exactly what you're talking about, Marillion. It's exactly what you're talking about, Chuck. She didn't see black children as black. She saw them as children. When they grew up, she saw them as something different. She saw them as, you, you know, and she could dehumanize them, I guess. But when they were kids, she really just saw them as kids. And, and uh, you
1: know, that's an important thing. It's, Parents are uh, important. Uh, an interesting story, because uh, the, what's his name? Uh, the, the first black who finished from Hollywood, the new Negro... Uh, I'm drawing a blank on his name.
0: That's but he right. went
1: to, he grew up in a predominantly white neighborhood until he got 12 years old. Uh, he was around all the whites and stuff like that. And by the time, once he turned 12, there was a birthday party, and he wasn't invited to. And he said that's when he realized he was black. Divorce. W-E-B yeah. Divorce. Oh, Divorce, yeah. Uh, and then, uh, he tells right. the story of that. Uh but I, I think that Frederick Douglass is just, uh, just an incredible man who was able to think and, and see things. I think some of the people that I have think have been able to think and grow has been, of course, Frederick Douglass and important to that. I think Du Bois. Uh, I think Martin Luther King is an incredible uh, mind and concept of, and growth in terms of Amen. where he started off and where he ended up. Martin, off, Martin started off, of course, as a preacher, uh, and then he got involved in the civil rights movement. And I think um, the powers that be could accept him as that, and for people who believed that he was fighting for black and white or for blacks to get better, and things were fine. But, and Martin Luther King was all right. But when Martin Luther King came out against the war in Vietnam, then he became a major figure. He was talking about changing this country you know, the structure of this country. You know, when he came out for the Poor People's March, then he wasn't just a civil rights leader anymore. He was a leader talking about structural change that affected people in this country, poor people, white people, uh, Native Americans, uh, black people, uh, everybody. And so then he became more of a threat when he was just a civil rights leader trying to get some people to like the right to vote. It, it, we could put up with him then. But then when he changed and his platform got bigger, he became a threat to this country. And he was viewed that by many people. They were willing to tolerate him. But when he came out against the war in Vietnam, there was a whole different attitude by a whole bunch of people who supported the war and who had supported uh, Dr. King in his struggle. But when he came out against the war, it was a whole different ball ballgame uh, on both levels. And so well, again, I, I think right. you're right that uh, sometimes there are people who will stand for one thing but don't want to grow. And one of the challenges that we face today as everybody in life is uh, being able to uh, grow. And some, what I mean by grow is even if you don't agree, if you can understand uh, that if you agree, if you don't agree but you understand why things are, then that's some dialogue that can happen. But when you take a position or I take a position that, nope, I don't want to hear about it, uh, I'm black, and y'all done this to me, and I'm not going. You know, I don't care. I don't. I'm going to take this position that you know this is systematic racism, and that's what it is. And and if you say, well, I don't know what systematic racism is, well, you all don't know you're white. Mm-hmm. Well, then we need to learn to talk. Or we need to learn to be to see each other as human beings. It doesn't matter because. Even though we see each other as human beings, we can certainly have different philosophies. We can talk about different ways to get to the to the store uh, and out which roads to take. But if we have an understanding of man as man, as human beings, uh, regardless of where you are in the world, then I think there's a better chance that the world will get better, that America will get better. But those are hard things to take because. Uh, lots of people don't have, and lots of people are fear of losing what they have, and they see themselves as being threatened.
0: Yes, uh, that's exactly right. And they respond with violence because I think they don't have the capacity to think, they don't have the knowledge, and there's a lot of smug ignorance that you can point the finger at, To I have to say, a lot of these Trump voters, the extreme right wing, and they do not want to engage in dialogue simply because... They can't. They don't have the mind or the heart that would give them a capacity to understand the plight of their fellow man or compassion for the suffering of their fellow man. All they care is about themselves and they not being able to think like Frederick Douglass and um, really it, it, sort of the psychology of it, of it is they're left with violence.
1: Well, and, you know, I I'll, think part of that is that mm-hmm. when you are used to having something, uh and you've had it all your life and from your perspective you see it being go being taken away. Take for an example, there's Johnny Joe who just finished high school and he wants to marry Mary Lou. And Johnny <laughs> Joe ain't very smart, ain't very bright, but he can uh you know, he can get by. And his father works in a uh gas station or mechanic shop and so he goes to uh the, the Safeway and he tell he knows the manager and he say, Mr. Bob, Johnny Joe finished in high school and he want to marry Mary Sue, and so he needs a job. can you look out for him And the thing is he say once more, he said, yes I'll do what I can, but you know now that I got affirmative action and I got it for not only blacks but the the Latins or the Mexicans or whatever, so I don't mm-hmm. know what I can do because the law say I got to hire some of them now. Uh, and so now, all of a sudden, uh, this man, uh, Bob, is frustrated because what he could have done for his son, he can't do no more. And so this idea that you're giving up the power of being white or you're giving up even your economic status or, you know, it ain't even minimum wage, but at least you can do that and you have that. But when you start to take that away, Uh, In America, you know, the privilege of being white has been the privilege of being white, whether you are uh, on welfare or whether or not you are upper middle class or whether or not you're rich. I remember a friend of mine uh, whose husband was in the Army and he was something when he was over a department and he needed, he was hiring some uh, secretaries and some typists. And this white lady came in. And she was late for the typing test, but he said, okay. She said, but I had some car trouble, and so I, I just got here. So he said, okay, I'll give you the test. And he gave her the test, and then he got the results back, and he said, well, I'm sorry. You did not qualify for it to be looked at because you didn't meet the uh, typing speed number of words you needed to type. And... He said, so we can't even consider you for the job. And she looked at him. He was black and she was white. And she said to him, she said to him well, at least I'm white. That should count for something.
2: Yeah.
1: It's a, well, concept, I,
2: I, a privilege of being white. Uh, yeah. I, I think of this scene from a movie with Gene Hackman called Mississippi Burning, where he tells yeah. the guys that, that he was, his father was a white sharecropper and that a black guy down the road got a mule and that his father went out one night and shot the mule and killed it. And, and Gene Hackman asked him, he couldn't believe he did that. Why would you do that? And he said, cause if I'm not better than a black man, and he didn't use black man, but if I'm not better than that, what am I? So yeah, yeah it really is a loss of status and an anger you know, nobody gets violent. I don't care what you're talking about. Even if you're talking about, my, you know, a dog. My dog only gets violent when he's afraid. He doesn't mm-hmm. get, you know, he does. he's the happiest guy, uh, you know. And a few times I've heard him growl. It's because some dog has attacked him or growled at him. But, but you know, first, I, first, let me just say one thing about Dr. King that I think we all forget sometimes. He changed the world, and he did it all before he reached 40. He was killed at 39 years old. And and that's one of the things that, that murdered at 39 years old. That amazes me. That he had such an impact
1: on the entire world. And, and he never even made 40. Amen. Well, you know, and I think uh, two things about that. Number one, I think that the one thing that is important for us to remember is Dr. King was simply a man. Like any other man who who had good times? Who had bad times? Who had failures? Who had successes? Right. And that that door is open to all of us. There is lots of other Dr. Kings out here. There's lots of other Frederick Douglasses. There's lots of other Senators Brown out here. And we need to make sure that they can grow and and flourish. And I think one of the big issues now and that we we have not addressed or so just beginning to to even lift the covers, not pull the covers back is mental illness, and not only in uh, African-American communities the people of color communities the whites or young people, but there has been a problem, and we have learned just to let it go. And the only people who we thought could deal with uh, mental illness was people with money, lots of money. They went and sat on the couch and, and, and paid $125 an hour for 30 minutes and said what they wanted, and they went for eight years, and well they and they felt better because they you know they worked through things, and I think there's a lot of things that this country has done to lots of people that we need to learn how to work through them. I think all the trauma that these uh kids and families in, in Texas just had, man, they just you know it's going to take a lot, uh, but yeah. not only them, just lot there are lots and lots of. Uh, challenges with this country for the way we have looked at things and done things and treated people uh, generally. Uh, and it's it's a challenge. But I don't think that we cannot get better. I think this is the country that has risen to the occasion and will continue to rise. Uh, sometimes we take uh, a step back, but one step at a time, that one of the things I continue to say is that Uh, this is a battle, not a war. And that is one day at a time, one step at a time, brick by brick, step by step.
2: Marilia, do you have a last question? Because we're almost out of time. Um,
0: I will let you have the last question, but I just want to say he said there's other Martin Luther Kings and other frederick douglas is out there well there are other chuck hicks is out there too and just yeah. like on lewis and elijah cummins so thank you for the amazing work that you've done and we hope you will continue to do it and come back on the show
2: you know and just let me add to that chuck on a personal note uh whether you know it or not uh you have been a mentor for me because i'm involved in this struggle. And I look at people like you that are so inspiring and really only care about making a better world. Uh, and, and, and you really, you, you give me such strength. I can't tell you how much people like you and Dick Gregory and, and uh, uh, Joe Madison and other people, uh, Anise Jenkins, uh, how much strength you've given me over the years. So God bless you. Thank you. Uh, I hope your Black Fathers Matter project goes well. Uh, and um, uh, it, it actually it actually happened this morning. We're pre-recording, so it hasn't happened yet, but it's going to happen. Well, before, I certainly so. want Go to ahead.
1: invite anyone who'd like to be a part of the Black Fathers Motorcade. We start at the African American Civil War Museum on uh, line lineup at 10 o'clock, and we'll be going through boards 1, 5, 7, and 8. And, of course, sometimes the question is in nice the case me, well, I'm white, so can I be in it? And I said, well, you know, last year we had oh, eight, ten white, white people in cars do, uh, doing that. If you believe that Black Fathers Matter, Black Lives Matter, then join us. Uh, and uh, we'll be decorating cars, and we'll be going through wards one, five, seven, and eight. And then we'll end up at the big chair where we're we'll going to have some music and a little festival uh, in connection with Juneteenth. And uh, we're going to focus on Black help particularly black men. So if anybody uh, is interested in becoming a part of it, you, know, you can call me at 202-421-8608 uh, or email me, mrblackhistory at yahoo.com, and I will give you the information, and we look forward to having as many cars and individuals as possible.
2: Thank you so much. Yeah, Thank we love... Thank you, Chuck. We love you,
1: and we're glad you came on the show.
2: And,
1: and- I am pleased that whenever you... Uh, Leave me. I am happy to be here. And I, I look forward to doing it whenever you need, whenever you ask. It's always a wow. pleasure. It's such a good conversation that we can have. About well, you
0: make it good, it. Chuck.
1: Yeah. And you know
2: what? We, at the end of every show, we play a song and we dedicate it to uh, our guest. And today, here's an oldie, but a goodie from the Godfather of Soul. Here's James Brown. And we'll see you next week. Thank you so much, right. Chuck. Thank you so much, Marilia. Thank
0: we'll you, see you Mark. next week. You bet.
1: Their right to vote. <laughs> Give the people their right to vote. Give the people their right to vote. Give the people their right to vote. Give the people their right to
0: vote.